the first and only time I've ever served on a jury was over 20 years ago. The case involved a young man by the name of, believe it or not, Sammy Davis, not to be confused with the famous singer and actor. Sammy Davis was accused of robbery and attempted murder. If convicted, this would have been his third strike. At the end of the hearing, it didn't take long for us as a jury to come to a unanimous decision of guilty. It was an open and shut case for us because there was clear video footage of Mr. Davis pointing a gun at the liquor store attendant and firing. During the trial, that same attendant who was on the video actually came in to testify and showed us his bullet wound. Although the defendant covered part of his face with his hand, this didn't help his case because not only was half of his face still recognizable on the video, so was the prominent jewelry on his hands, which the police brought into the courtroom for us to see to identify him. I believe his case was not aided at all by the fact that he, clearly young and poorly educated, decided to represent himself. This individual, like so many others, made a choice. And you could say that there are a lot of factors involved, but the choice ultimately came down to this. Commit a crime or not. In my opinion, he chose poorly. His decision not only affected himself, but others as well. When it comes to sin, and specifically the sin of partiality, we too have a choice. Show favoritism or not. And when we do that, when we choose to sin in that way, we're not helping ourselves and we're not helping others. When it comes down to it, those are the only two options. Do the sin or avoid it. And although there may be various scenarios and innumerable variables, it all comes down to obeying or disobeying the law. And as we continue our study in the book of James on the topic of partiality, James makes this very point in verses 8 through 11 of chapter 2. I invite you to join me in James chapter 2, verses 8 through 11, where James writes, If, however, you are fulfilling the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one point, he has become guilty of all. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not commit murder. Now if you do not commit adultery, but do commit murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. Quite simply, in these few verses this morning, we're going to talk about two options of partiality. For the Christian, there are two options of partiality. Option number one, show love and fulfill the law. Show love and fulfill the law. We find this in verse 8. This, of course, is the better option, and for the God-fearing Christian, the only option. It really comes down to what James tells us here is the greatest commandment, which is love. Now, to be accurate, we know that the command to love is broken into two commandments, two greatest commandments, and we find this explained in Matthew chapter 22 from the lips of our Lord Jesus Christ himself, 
Would you turn with me to Matthew chapter 22? And we're going to look at verses 35 through 40. A very familiar passage because it is a situation where in a conversation and being asked by someone who actually wants to challenge him, he is able to tell the world, to tell us what is or what are rather the greatest commandments. Matthew chapter 22 verses 35 through 40. This is a scenario where he's dialoguing with various followers and various people who are not followers but are physically following him, challenging him, questioning him, debating with him. And verse 35 says, one of them, who is a lawyer, asked him a question, testing him. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? Now, you understand when they refer to the law here, they are referring to the Old Testament law, specifically summed up in the Ten Commandments, which Dennis just read for us. But we know that Jesus went on to heighten these laws, as we'll talk about in a minute. He goes on in verse 37, and he said to him, this is Jesus speaking, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. That answers his question, but he goes on. He says, this is the great and foremost commandment. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And all these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets. So the greatest commandment is to love the Lord. The second, which I always like to point out, the lawyer never asked for, but was important enough for Jesus to mention. The second is to love others. And it is the second commandment that James refers to in our passage this morning. Now in Matthew chapter 7 and verse 12, Jesus phrases this same commandment in a way that is familiar to us in what we call the golden rule. Let me read Matthew 7:12 for you. Treat people the same way you want them to treat you, for this is the law and the prophets. We see that our Lord Jesus refers to loving your neighbor as yourself as the second greatest commandment. He also calls it the commandment on which rest the law and the prophets. Paul in Galatians 5 and Romans 13 refers to this commandment as the fulfillment of the law. James, in James chapter 2, calls it the royal law. And when James calls it this, He is referring to the supremacy of this commandment while at the same time adding to its description the authority and sovereignty of God. It is the royal law. It comes from the king. It is binding. It is absolute. It is supreme. It is an imperial edict. It is regal. It is excellent. It is the royal law. And the Bible is very clear that we are to love our neighbors as much as we love ourselves. Whereas one's neighbor in the Old Testament was limited to a fellow Israelite, we know that Jesus expanded this to include anyone and everyone, even your enemies. In Matthew 5, he says that. And that's the idea in John 13, 34, where Jesus tells his disciples, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. And in that verse, John 13, 34, the Greek word new, where he says, a new commandment I give you, does not mean new in the sense of never existing before, but new in the sense of giving a freshness or a renewal to something that already existed. 
It's kind of like when the waitress refills your existing cup of coffee a bit to warm it up. Give you a warm-up, right? She pours a little bit in. There's still coffee in there. Same coffee, same cup, but now hotter and a bit fresher. The disciples he is speaking to in John 13 knew already that they were to love. But what Jesus is saying is that he is heightening the commandment, making it new in that you are to love everyone and not just your own kind and to love as God loves us. So the depth to love as God loves us is increased as well as the breadth to love everyone, not just your close friends, not just the people you hang out with, not just your family members, anyone you come in contact with. Now, jumping back to James, when we fulfill this law, he says we are doing well. Fulfill means to perform completely. And when that love is performed completely, you are doing well. In other words, you are doing morally good. Your behavior is pleasing to the Lord. It is what the Bible calls excellence. Why? Why are you doing well when you fulfill this law? Big picture, because by loving your neighbor as yourself, you are living in a way that reflects the character of God, which is ultimately your goal in this life as a Christian, to live in a way that reflects the character and will of God. You understand his will, his character comes out in his will. It's not doing well in loving because it makes you feel good, although it will. Not so others will like you, although they may. It's because it is what summarizes what God desires of you in relation to others such that his character is reflected in you so that people see a reflection of God in how you treat them. But more specifically, in our text, Why does fulfilling the command to love your neighbor as yourself mean you are doing well, doing excellently? Because by loving your neighbor as yourself, by loving biblically, you are not showing partiality. To put it negatively, showing favoritism, showing partiality violates biblical love, which in turn means you're not doing well. And I'm not sure on where on the great scale of morality I fall when I show any portion or any part of partiality. I don't know where that is on the scale, but I don't really care. Because anything less than being perfect, anything less than excellence is absolutely unacceptable to me, and it should be absolutely unacceptable to you. What James is saying is that there is no scale in this situation. You are either loving or you are not. And if you show partiality, you are not. It's not that you are loving less. You are not loving, at least that particular individual. Here, in yet another way and from another angle, James is showing us how terrible partiality is. He says it violates the fulfillment of the law and the prophets. It ignores the sovereign authority of the one who forbids favoritism among his children because you violate the kingly, the royal law. Now this is a great lesson on what true biblical love looks like. We learned back in 1 Corinthians 13 that God's definition of love 
is often, usually, very different, both in its description and practical outworking, than the multiple descriptions of love that we have in the world. And what James presents to us this morning here is no different. Here's what I mean. You may show favoritism towards someone out of respect, out of a desire for their happiness, possibly what the early church was doing when they ushered the rich to honorable seats in the church service. You may be showing favoritism out of a recognition of someone's worldly achievements. But what James is saying is that is not biblical love. The believers James is addressing may have very well favored the rich for all of those reasons, socially good reasons. Yet James spends quite a bit of time confronting and correcting this behavior. There are times when we are well-meaning and we have good intentions only to be taken aside and corrected with Scripture. It can be hurtful. It can be confusing. I thought I was doing what was good. I was just trying to help. But true love comes down to abiding by the Scriptures and when it comes to loving others, helping them abide by it too. So even though we may applaud your efforts, even though we may be encouraged by your intentions, we want to make sure we as a body together are doing things biblically. Sammy Davis may very well have committed his crimes out of respect for his gang that he was a part of, to support them, to bring them happiness, although we may not understand it, to bring them clout, which is, which is important in a gang like his. But he did so at the expense of obeying the law and treating others how he would want to be treated. He violated the laws of the land to the degree that the stability of society and the freedom we have in America to feel safe and live freely was jeopardized and taken away. He had no regard for the law. He had no regard for the country that gave those laws. He had no regard for the sanctity of human life that those laws protect. And all of those things are what true love accomplishes. And that's what we must excel. That's why we must excel in love when it comes to how we view others, not just in the context of ministering to them, but also in the context of quick judgments as we walk into church, as we walk down the street, judging by social values. We must avoid partiality as a part of our pursuit of biblical and excellent love. Now that's option one. Show love and fulfill the law. In other words, avoid partiality. The second option, though humanly possible and probably too often practiced, should not be an option for the believer at all. Option number two, show partiality and break the law. Show partiality and break the law. Let's start with verse 9. We see this in verses 9 through 11. Verse 9 says, But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. If it wasn't abundantly clear by now, James clearly states that showing partiality is sin, thus making the one practicing partiality declared by the law as a transgressor, as a breaker of the law. We do well to keep in mind that God looks at the heart because God is primarily concerned with the heart. 
So although you may not actually ask the poor man to stand in the back at church or sit on the floor or usher the rich man to the seats of honor, you may very well be judging in your heart. And that is what God is concerned about. Because that too is showing partiality, playing the judge as we saw last week. So whether in action or in thought, committing this sin convicts you as a transgressor of the law. The reality is, as Christians, we can easily be desensitized to the biblical truths regarding the gravity of all sin because of a different biblical truth, that we are all sinners and we sin all the time. And because we do that and because we sin all the time, because we know we are sinners, we're no longer slaves to sin as Christians, but we still are tempted, we still stumble, we still commit sins, we can be desensitized to the fact that sin is gross and horrible and serious. And as we continue on in life day by day, we must strive for a greater appreciation for the holiness of God, which comes with a greater appreciation of the sinfulness of sin. It is not just looking at your circumstances and the people it hurts. It is looking at God and appreciating and worshiping His holiness. It is then that you will recognize how sinful your sin is. When we do that, we will be less inclined to pass something off as just a small thing. I know it's sin, but it's not a big deal. It doesn't hurt anyone. It's just a minor problem. You can hear the justifications in the early church to James. Why is he writing this? I was just helping him find a seat. Look at how he's dressed. He's used to being treated well. I just wanted him to feel comfortable here at church. Well, don't you see him? You've seen him on the way to the marketplace, dirty beggar. He lives on the street, so I figured he wouldn't mind sitting on the floor sitting in the back, especially since last time he was here, he smelled so bad it bothered everyone. Well-meaning, no big deal. But it is a big deal because it is sin. And we must see sin for what it is, a clear and conscious defiance of God which constitutes behavior for which God killed his own son to free us from. In other words, this is a serious charge. It's not just being nice to someone. It is sin. Not just the holiness of God. You know, I just mentioned, it helps us understand the gravity, the grossness of sin by appreciating the holiness of God. People say, why should I read the Old Testament? Well, that's one reason. Appreciate the holiness of God. You say, well, I don't get it. It bothers me. He killed people. He killed people's children and grandchildren because of someone, something someone did two generations ago. And there you understand the holiness of God. The seriousness of sin. Every sin. They say, look to the cross. Look to the cross. Don't you feel bad? Look what, what Jesus had to suffer for your sins. That's the holiness of God. The holiness of God demanded that Jesus Christ be slaughtered for your sins. Whether it's murder, whether it's adultery, whether it's partiality, 
whether it's that little lie that actually made things better socially for other people. It's serious. And James says, no matter what the sin, you are, we are, convicted by the law as transgressors. Just the word convicted emphasizes the seriousness of this. It means to convince with overwhelming evidence that in this case you are breaking God's commands. There's proof. And even if there's no proof for any onlookers, there is proof for God because, again, He looks at the heart. And no matter how much we may pass it off or think we are getting away with it, our sin is as visible to God as that video of Mr. Davis shooting the liquor store clerk. Clearer, in fact. As a jury, as a juror, I wasn't there. God is. You may try to be subtle about your judgments or hide them like he tried to hide his face, but the evidence is there. It says we are a transgressor in this case. It refers to someone who steps across a boundary. And it is a technical term in the New Testament for someone who directly disobeys a command. So why is James taking this so seriously? Because partiality violates the command to love. The greatest commandments. We know that this then would be a habitual partiality, whether in heart or deed. And in line with that, this is more than just being rude or impolite, which at worst may be another sin such as anger, or at best just a lack of awareness. What we're talking about is a conscious characteristic of judging and showing partiality. I don't like those people. The reason James is making such a big deal about something that seems normal in society and may not even bother the one who is being judged is because it is sin. Again, it's about the holiness of God. We should not justify something and say they're okay with it. They actually prefer it. They know they smell. They want to stand in the back. Fine, then let them stand in the back. But that doesn't change the fact that before you knew that, you wanted them to sit in the back because you judge the homeless or whatever it may be, whomever it may be. Okay? So we need to understand the sin cannot be justified because others are okay with it. Even the object, the recipient of your sin is okay with it. We look to God and what He says kind of getting further and further from the point here, but a good example of this that I've shared with you before is what is the greatest act of love that you can practice toward an unbeliever? Share the gospel. So is it okay to not share the gospel because the unbeliever in his natural depraved state says, I don't want to hear it? Of course not. What he desires does not justify our disobedience. It is what God wants, what God demands. But back in James 2, he goes on to explain that this sin, as well as any other sin, is not just about the particular sin, but about the violation of the entirety of the law. In other words, our view of the law, our respect for God's commands. Look at verse 10. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one point 
he has become guilty of all. The concept here is pretty simple. It helps that we use the same terminology today. Of the thousands of federal and state laws that we have, if you break one of them, we say you have broken the law, even if you have upheld all the others. In other words, you don't have to break every single law to be considered a lawbreaker. And this is essentially what James is saying when it comes to the commands of God. Even if you have obeyed everything else God commands of you, even if in your love you uphold every other aspect of love listed in 1 Corinthians 13, but you show partiality, you have become guilty of all of it. It's like glass. If it's cracked in just one point, the whole thing is broken. In these storms that we've had and the others that are coming, if you have a small leak in your roof, you wouldn't say, it's just a small leak, let it drip, we're never going to fix that. You would use the same terminology regardless of the size of the leak, regardless of where that leak lands, regardless of what damage that, do- that water does, and you would say, my roof is leaking. You have broken the law. All it takes is one small leak for you to, f- to define your roof as leaking, and all it takes is one sin to break the whole law and to be guilty of breaking it all. Imagine if it was a child or a contractor who did something wrong and caused that leak. You would use the same terminology, you broke my roof. Even though 99.9% of your roof is totally intact, the structure is fine, it's not going to collapse, it's a tiny leak, you wouldn't accept that. Oh, I'm sorry, sir, I kind of knew I did that when I jammed my drill through the entirety of your roof. But you know what? It's a small leak. I knew that it was over your bathroom, and your bathroom tiles are waterproof, so what's what's the big deal? You'd say, "Uh, no, you broke my roof. And it's the same idea here. Now, James goes on to give a very practical example in verse 11. Verse 11 says, For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not commit murder. Now, if you do not commit adultery, but do commit murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So right off the bat, James tells us why this is ultimately so important with the phrase, for he who said. Don't pass that over. That's just not some sort of benign introduction to quoting the Old Testament. There's great significance here. For he who said, the unity of the law is found in that it is the one lawgiver who has given all of it to us. In other words, every command is part of a larger body of work, which is an indivisible whole because they all together form a singular reflection of the will of God. To violate any part of the law, any of the laws, is to disobey God and make you guilty before God, thus guilty of His whole law. This is so crucial to understand. If you don't grasp this, then you lose the meaning of the whole passage and lose a proper motivation to follow it. These are not distinct 
they are all together one unified body of work as a full and proper representation of God's character, which again flows out in his will for you, which flows out into the pages of your scriptures. They're not just words on paper. This is the character and will of God expressed in words. It's not just some written text. It's not just some email. It's just not some just lengthy book. It is someone speaking, and that someone happens to be the one who fixes and determines all that is right and good as well as all that is wrong and sinful. And this is illustrated by James in the rest of the verse. He gives us two very well-known and clear commands. Do not commit adultery and do not commit murder. Simply put, do one and not the other and you are still in violation of God's law. To put it another way, you don't have to break all the laws to be a lawbreaker. To be clear, God's will is violated no matter which command you break. He's just giving two big ones, but the principle applies to everything in the Scriptures. And Sammy Davis did not actually murder. As far as the case was concerned, he never hurt a minor. He never committed arson. As far as the evidence presented to us was concerned, he never even broke a single traffic law. But despite upholding those laws, he broke the law. You know, in our society, penalties for various crimes will vary. Certainly, the one who robs a convenience store will not be punished to the same degree as someone who commits murder. In that context, however, again, both are considered lawbreakers. Both are considered criminals. And here's actually where the analogy falls apart. And where it falls apart highlights the seriousness of all sin as well as the holiness of God. Because unlike in our society, no matter the sin, whether it's showing partiality to a rich man or committing murder, the punishment is the same. And the punishment is the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. He did not just die for the big sins. And because of this, our view of obedience and sin should be absolute. It is based not on the consequences of society, but on the holiness of God. It is based not on personal ramification, but on personal redemption. It is based not on subjective feelings, but on objective truth. We could also argue, as many have and do these days, that Mr. Davis was a product of his environment. We could say that his choice was not commit a crime or don't commit a crime, but that his choice was commit a crime or don't eat. But the reality of all of those arguments do not change the objective truth of what the law is and the choice he made to break the law. And we do the same thing with our sin. We justify it with social circumstances, family circumstances, our feelings. And we want to be gracious. We want to lift those up to the Lord. We need to cry out to the Lord like David did. But in the end, say God's word is truth. And I must obey regardless of how I feel. 
regardless of what my boss says, my parents say, regardless of the potential of being disowned by my parents and having been kicked out of the house, regardless of having to break up that relationship or my spouse pursuing divorce, we obey God. When it comes to God, sin is sin. And it must be dealt with in our lives swiftly, severely, and exhaustively, no matter how big, and perhaps more importantly on a practical level, level for us, no matter how small. Because it's seemingly the small sins that we overlook and let fester. And by the way, who are we to determine what is big or small? The reality is that you may very well be, in a, work, uh, be a work in progress as far as partiality is concerned. It may not be practically outworking in your life, showing it or not. Maybe there's just one particular type of people that you show favoritism for or against. And as you pursue holiness, uh, the number of types of people you dislike or tend to idolize in an unbiblical way has shrunk. But there are still those couple of demographics that you struggle with. Praise God, excel still more. Perhaps you don't show partiality at all. And one day you come across an individual whom you've never met before. It could just be a stranger at Starbucks. And you think, wow, I thought people who dress like that or who speak like that were only in the movies, but there he is. And you have this uncontrollable urge to turn to the other stranger and say something bad about them, make a joke about them, this urge to dislike them for seemingly justifiable reasons, and you have no idea what that feeling is, and you realize, I'm judging this person. Praise God that you realize that. Now deal with the sin. Here's my point. Although God's objective truth is clear-cut, not everything is clear-cut in our lives. There are levels of growth, degrees of sin, progressive sanctification. We are in a marathon race that lasts a lifetime. But here, James is saying it's black and white, and objectively, it is. It is either sin or it is not. Be aware that there is grace, there is patience, there is sympathy on the part of God when He sees our sin. But the reason there is a need for grace and patience and sympathy is the fact that there is sin. And it is objectively black and white. It is the pursuit of total obedience and the rejection of any infraction of the law that is to be the overarching pursuit in our lives. Because whether it's showing partiality or any other sin, even the most seemingly minor of infractions makes us a transgressor of the law and guilty of all. But we do not resign ourselves to our sinful state like the criminal who feels like he's trapped in a life of crime and resigns to continue breaking the law. Rather, we acknowledge our weaknesses and sins, 
while recognizing that our true state is not that of an uncontrolled sinner, but is that of a freed, redeemed. Two options of partiality. Option one, show love and fulfill the law. Option two, show partiality and break the law. If, however, you are fulfilling the royal law according to the Scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. Forever, for whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one point, he has become guilty of all. For he who said do not commit adultery also said do not commit murder. Now if you do not commit adultery but do commit murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, whether it's the sin of partiality or any other sin, may we repent. I pray that you would guard us against thinking that there are small sins. Help us to recognize your holiness and grow in our appreciation of that. And I pray, Father, that that would in turn lead us to deal with all sins drastically, violently, quickly. Grow each and every one of us in our love for you, love for your holiness, love for obedience, and our hatred of our sin. And I pray, Father, that you would help us to not just wait until a sin grows so that it is uncontrollable, that it has huge practical ramifications, and it becomes so much harder to step back. Help us see it when it's small and not overlook it. To not ignore that lustful glance that whether it's at an individual or an object that more money could buy if only we had more money. Small bout of anger, a quick flash of impatience, one little break of our discipline of praying or focusing on you, whatever it is, Lord. Help us to understand that that is still breaking the entirety of the law. And I pray, Father, you would help us deal with that quickly. May we be a church that seeks greater accountability from you and your word and from one another. May we be a church that puts into practice what we have been learning in that book in the men's and women's groups to be able to talk about sin, to address sin, not just open to talk about our own sin, to seek help and accountability, but being those who are willing to graciously, lovingly pry into the lives of others to help them with their sin. May we be a church that is not embarrassed to talk about sin, that does not shy away from it, but may we also not be a church that is so excited that we talk about our sin because we want to open up our failures but then do nothing about those sins. Father, help us to have a biblical understanding and biblical response to all that you desire of us when it comes to partiality, but also when it comes to understanding your holiness, your grace, and the sin of breaking any part of your word. Pray these things.